Well, Dr. Seema Patel, welcome back to the Full Capacity Living Podcast. You were with us before um, on episode 18, where we talked about optimizing mood and lowering depression um, with functional medicine. But today for Breast Cancer Month, October is, is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, right? Um, I asked you to come back so that we could talk a little bit more about um, just a different conversation than we have in conventional medicine around breast cancer. The conversation around the fact that we have a little more agency and we have more control over some of the things that we can do. Um, and some of the controversies around um, just some of the, the research, but um, thank you for being here. I'm super excited to have this conversation because it's really, really important to me personally, as well as for a lot of people. Um, thank you. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, great, great. I mean, the incidence of breast cancer now in women is one in eight, right? We can't forget men. I mean, there's a small percentage, like 1% of all breast cancer is men, but the bigger picture is really women, one in eight. You know, if you have eight friends, you could legitimately say, gosh, one of us might have breast cancer. Or eight colleagues. Eight colleagues, right. It's a big number. Um, that's, you know, just anybody walking down the street. And I'm sure many people who might be listening to this podcast know someone who's gone through breast cancer. Maybe they've gone through breast cancer. Maybe they have some risk factors that they know about. Um, I think I, what I'd really love to talk about is the accessible things that people can do. Um, but what contributes to it? What do we know from a functional medicine perspective? Yeah. So, you know, kind of preparing for this, um, you know, breast cancer is the most common cancer in the U.S. for women, and it's a second leading cause of death for women. Mm. Uh, so it's, you know, it's definitely up there. You know, conventional medicine believes half of it can be explained by some known risk, whether it's a reproductive or having a proliferative risk. So there's reproductive risk of, um, those are the risks that we're going to talk about, like having a child late in life, having uh, no children, not breastfeeding, um, and then clearly, you know, having excess weight, which is like a big thing, and age, those are a huge risk. But there's also proliferative breast tissue, and this is something that, you know, physicians all think about, but I don't think patients even understand what does that mean? So this is women who have had breast pain or breast biopsies, and they found some kind of abnormal or atypical tissue, right? And then they say, <laughs> the, the problem with conventional medicine is like, oh, we found this. We're just going to monitor you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we'll see you in six months. But, but as the patient, you're like, oh, God, like you just said my risk is just going to go up and you're just going to watch me? Like, isn't there anything I can do? And that's sort of where functional medicine and integrative medicine really do shine, right? And 10% of all cancers are family history or personal risk, personal cancer risks that they have. Mm -hmm. So when you look at that, most of it can be modified. And even if it's genetic, there's a lot of, at the end of the day in functional medicine, we say 20% is genetics, 80% is still the environment, the epigenetics of it. Yeah, that's so, so key. Oh, yeah, sure. So outside of like, you know, 
telling women that like, you have your child before 30 and it, it, that doesn't happen always try to breastfeed for as long as possible that's i there's so many benefits for that but you know sometimes it doesn't happen so what are you gonna do like i don't want women to feel like they failed and now they're putting themselves at risk i mean this is just part of life there's other things that we can do right um minority women clearly have um much greater risk and that's probably from all the other epigenetic changes that are happening with, that come with poverty with racial discrimination um and weight is a huge one a bmi over you know you're having if you're in the obese category you have risk for every cancer but that's just not breast cancer yeah um yeah so those are those are the big risks that we know and then we think you know so now we know okay, so some of it's going to be reproductive. So these are women who are high estrogen states. So, you know, what defines a high estrogen state, right? So there's lots of ways we can look at it. So one is I, I do recommend all women in their 20s get a base, not on birth control, but if you're not on birth control, get an estrogen progesterone level in the mid luteal phase. So that's like 10 seven to 10 days before your period, whenever that may be, just because you want to know what your serum estrogen is. And if you find that you're on the really high side of that, you have too much estrogen. You should be kind of like middle range. That's really what we want. And we want you to project. So one, you just have too much estrogen. Two, the estrogen and the progesterone are not balanced for whatever reason that may be. And there's so many other reasons that can cause an estrogen to right. progesterone imbalance. And then the third way I think about it is what are your metabolites? So you may not have a lot of estrogen, but you can't metabolize your estrogen. And so this is another thing I don't think people really think about. And I don't think conventional medicine thinks about it. In functional medicine, we know that everything that comes in has to go through detoxification, just like estrogen does. Mm -hmm. And then it has to be metabolized and we can make good metabolites and bad metabolites. So those are the three ways that have too much estrogen. So would like that, the testing in that, um, that age range for women, the progesterone and estrogen would, can you just ask your OBGYN to do that? Would they, would yeah, they do? They probably be like, why? You know, I so know, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> but so, like, I don't want to do so it. So what you could do, um, to make a convincing argument, because this is sort of how I have to coach my patients to talk to their specialists. Right. So one, if there's a family history of estrogen, I mean, of any kind of cancers, any hormonal cancers, just I've been doing some reading and, you know, they're saying I should at least check to see if I'm the high range or low range, just so I know. Yeah. Two, I have some gynecological issue. I have PMS, I have fibroids, or, you know, you have something going on. Yeah. PCOS, right? So they'll check for the, those reasons. And so even if you may not have the greatest symptoms, <laughs> like those are like, or ways you can say, could you just code it under PMS or something or family history? So that way, or, or like, as you and I know, in functional medicine, there's a lot of ways you can get testing done, exactly. but it has to be mid-luteal, not just any time. Because this is the other thing, conventional medicine doesn't know when to test. And I really do think mid-luteal will be the best because that's the only time progesterone comes in. That's at the highest level. And what we really want to see is how those two are paired. Right, right. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think that is always the question for a lot of people, like, how do I get my doctor to actually run this test? And what do I, because you want, I mean, frankly, if you can get it covered under your insurance, you'd love to have that covered. We all pay so much into our insurance. That's where it should be covered, right? If you get pushback, right, there are other ways of doing it. I mean, in the functional medicine world, and and even there's there's a lot of different testing companies online now that would do it. But um, just to have that information, you're right, like, just create a little timeline and a pathway throughout your life to know where you are, and then you can use that information. So, exactly. Yeah, that's helpful. Exactly. Because that helps you. And I, and I do find my younger women are much more proactive. Like, like they want to come in because I want to come off of birth control, but I want to do all my functional medicine stuff first before I stop my hormones. I'm like, I don't think like my generation even thought about that. We just like stop birth control. And we're like, what? you know, um, yeah. but it is really, I think they're much more informed. Maybe it's because of social media. There's just more information out there. Um, and I salute that. Yeah, definitely. I agree. I agree. So, so that's kind of the younger population. And as you get it older, um, what are some other things that people need to be looking at? So, but the other thing that conventional medicine will do is they will take a perimenopausal woman who's having some, you know, issues with abnormal bleeding or, and they'll just put her in birth control. So contraceptives after a certain age, there's some linkage, some they're just saying maybe they're putting some risk at, at breast cancer. So perimenopausal women should not be on birth control. I'm sorry. I disagree with that. I, for reproductive age women, I think birth control is, I know there's a lot of people in functional medicine that don't believe in birth control, but I think profound changes have been happening in women's life because we are able to control when we have children, how many children we have, and that economic empowerment for women, I would never take away birth control for them. Yeah. So I'm not on that camp. I'm like, just, I'll support you. Right. right. And I think, I think it definitely is a personal choice for everyone, right? You're presenting like all of these different reasons. Why, why not? What, what you should be checking, what you can be testing. So you can, you can do that, but you also need to be testing like, and looking at, well, what are my levels? Like if I am on birth control right now, um, then that might help inform that choice of, okay, maybe I can try something else. And this is a time in my life as I'm getting older that I really don't need it, even though there are some fluctuations with symptoms or, you know, levels of estrogen and all and of that. There's way, other ways to help perimenopausal women. The other risk was um, high androgens, right? So PCOS women, they're in a high estrogen state, right? And then insulin, high insulin levels. So even if you're not obese, but you are a borderline diabetic and you have or insulin resistance, that mm-hmm. puts you at risk because that affects that steroid pathway, yeah. the estrogen metabolite pathway. Yeah, 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 which gets starts to get a little confusing, which is is exactly why you need somebody to navigate that through with you. Right. <laughs> like, exactly. I mean, we'll talk about the Dutch test, which can look at all of those pathways and, and look at the different types of estrogen and how your body detoxes or the metabolites from it. Um, that's such amazing, incredible, great information that I, I think not enough people know about. Um, but you do need somebody to navigate that through with you. Like the first test you talked about, just kind of getting those serum levels from blood, that's really helpful to kind of create the, the picture of what's going on for you. But when you need something a little bit more in depth, the Dutch is going to be the place to go. So we talked about the younger generation. We talked about perimenopause. Um, 
you know, the risk of, of birth control on that for controlling those symptoms. We're going to get to a place where I want to talk about, okay, where in lifestyle do we need to shift things to make a difference rather than deciding that we're going to just take a pill and that's going to change it. Um, but let's talk about menopause. I mean, <laughs> yeah, cause that's when really the true risk starts to occur for breast cancer, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so even there, if you do a serum level, um, if you can, if this is once again, it doesn't always happen, but they have one where they will give you a breakdown of all the types of estrogens. Um, the ones that they will uh, test for is a strone, which is one one molecule, estradiol, which is the most common estrogen that we have. And then estriol, which is found in, in pregnancy. So if you, if you can get one that breaks it all down, um, if not, if you just get estradiol, that will still be very, very helpful. Um, and a progesterone, because once again, if you're menopausal, it should be low. And all of a sudden, we're seeing high estrogen levels. Yeah. yeah. The question is like, why? So that question always is, you know, progesterone usually always is low. That's I've never seen a high progesterone state ever. Maybe I will. So, you know, um, but I think for my menopausal women, I, I usually go for the, the Dutch urine hormone test. I think, um, you know, do I, it's expensive and I know not all my patients can afford it all the time. So if you can rotate like every two, long as you're low risk, rotate between serum and the urine test, you can go back and forth confirming it's okay. So generally, so there's a lot of practices that will do the Dutch before. And then um, I usually do it a couple months later because before we don't really know what's going to happen if you're on hormone replacement. Um, I usually will do a serum just to make sure those levels are low. Because if I see a high serum estrogen, you're not I might do that Dutch sooner, especially if she's really advocating for hormones, or I might try to change her lifestyle and then repeat that serum level. And after she's on some kind of hormone replacement, that do the Dutch. I find that the most cost-effective. I realize lots of people have patients with lots of beans um, and they might be like, just do it. I don't care, but that's not my patient population. So. Right. Right. I agree. So you mentioned um, some people in perimenopause having high estrogen when typically that's the time in your life where estrogen pretty much tanks. And that's why you have all the symptoms you do. Why? So estrogen can be, so remember, we make estrogen in our ovaries and that gets shut off in, um, in menopause, but we still make estrogen in our adrenal glands and there's peripheral conversion in fat cells. So this is where obesity is playing a big role, right? And it doesn't matter if you're not like obese, like if you gained weight, let's say you were always 125 and now you're like 145, that 20 pounds is pretty much fat. And this is what happens with a lot of women. In yeah, I mean, everybody gains like 15 pounds. You know, I mean, like I, people are like, I want to lose this 15 pounds. And I'm like, I don't know if I can help with that because it's really hard to lose that weight. Oh, yeah. um, so, but that there's peripheral conversion that's happening that could increase um, our estrogen level. And then clearly the other thing is, what is our, that, that's the endogenous production of estrogen, right? So that endogenous just means what's your body's producing from the inside. Yeah. What we didn't even cover yet is the exogenous, what we get from the outside. There's yeah. a lot of estrogen 
from the outside. Um, right. And I think that, to be totally honest, is probably playing a bigger risk, even though conventional medicine does not agree that it's playing a risk. So exogenous causes of estrogen, um, plastics, mm -hmm. you know, phthalates, it's in every skincare product. Anything that you want to think that looks fantastic on your skin will have a phthalate. Right. I guarantee you. <laughs> Lipstick that stays on for 24 hours, bad idea. I mean, but even like Obagi, like some of these really amazing skincare products for women over 50, because I had a cosmetic summer, like every single last one of them have phthalates. And I'm like, oh my God, I was like selling all this stuff and I didn't know enough, but now I'm like, I don't buy anything with phthalates. Yeah, but yeah. All of this stuff, environmental toxins, pesticides, insecticides, you know, acrylene, you know, for, uh, that's like in dry cleaning and getting your nails done. Oh, like which oh I have had so many patients, clients of mine who were so, so connected to their nails. And it was this slow little working them into understanding, gosh, that is really not going to be helpful for you. Right. But they're so connected to that. And that's, that's true. It's, it's so we're, we stop talking about the menopause thing, but this is, this is pertinent to every age, right? Oh. It doesn't matter what age you are. When you're in your 20s, if your estrogen levels are really high, a yeah. big contributing factor can be this exogenous estrogen that is present. And well, so explain sort of a little bit about the xenoestrogens and how that looks like estrogen to our body. Like the plastic- well, Xenoestrogen is that, that external estrogen coming from pesticides, insecticides, plastic, nail polish, you know, all the stuff that we really like yeah. in what the, 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 the molecule, when it comes inside our bodies, it, its receptor is the exact shape of an estrogen receptor. So it can fit right into the estrogen receptor on a cell and tell the cell, hello, I'm here as an estrogen. And then the cell brings it in. And then all of a sudden we change the dynamics of our hormonal health. Right. And yeah. then more importantly, the other thing that changes when this molecule comes in is that it starts to decrease the, um, the activity of the mitochondria, which is your powerhouse of your cell that helps you detoxify, create energy. You just like, suck you just killed that mitochondria right there and it looks just the body just got confused yeah. so it's really important for us at every age to look at our skincare products our hair skin our hair care products it is estimated that women put over three thousand chemicals before they leave the house before oh. they leave the house right right right, right. <laughs> i mean and, and there's there's products out there that are clean like i talk yeah. about those things all the time and and I'll probably do another post um, just sort of connecting to EWG, which is a really great reference, right? The environmentalworkinggroup.org, where you can scan the UPC code of any product. Most products are in there. If it's a really obscure private brand, it may not be. But you could just look at some of the ingredients. You can actually put ingredients into EWG. If something looks like, oh, this is a really long name. I don't know what this is. Um, you can check it out. So but that's so important because we do, people minimize, you know, I've had people say to me, oh, does it really make that much of a difference? I'll say absolutely yes. Because you've probably even had patients who have started to 
pull away from some of these products, limit some of their exposures to plastics and some of the pesticides and ingredients in, in laundry detergent and cleaning supplies and candles and all the things that we have in our environment. And you can see like if, if they're at least in fertility stage, like you can see that that's starting to change a little bit and shift and open up their ability to conceive because their estrogen levels and their hormones are in a different place because they've let go of these things. Yeah. I mean, and the cleaner we raise our children, I mean, if our children are just raised this way, I don't think they, I hope, I mean, I don't really know. It's like a great experiment. Like when they become adults, they, they will also follow a pretty clean life. Right. Um, right. And that's really our goal, right? Because the world has become so much more toxic um, than ever before. So that's the thing with xenoestrogens. Right. And we can control our our little environment. I mean, you know, I always worry, especially in the spring, I'm always feeling like I take my dog for a walk in the neighborhood and I see all of the trucks coming out to spray lawns and people with little spray things, you know, on their weeds. And I think, I've seen a couple of people now on their hands and knees, just pulling weeds out. And I'm like, Oh, I love that. I'm so happy to see you just pull a weed instead of spray a weed. Um, those things make a huge difference, but we can control what happens in our bodies and what we put in it. We can also change, you know, even if you're exposed to those things, there are some things in, in life that can help us detox. Right. So even if we're, we feel like we're exposed to them on some level, which we all are, um, right. I row on the Cuyahoga river and I think, Oh, I'm doing something so great for my body. And then there's like this steel mill spewing all this crap into the air. And I think, well, that's not really good. So <laughs> what are also some of the things that we can do from a nutrition perspective and some of the things that are detoxifying for our bodies? Yeah. I mean, if we talk about general detoxification, that's one thing, but we think specifically about estrogen detoxification, because right. I'll, I'll kind of go back to general detoxification but, you know, I think what I tell my young women who are high estrogen states or who have a family history of some kind of breast cancer, I'm like, look, you need to get your cruciferous vegetables, which is like the broccoli, the kale, the cabbage, the cauliflower, bok, bok choy, Napa cabbage, Brussels sprouts. I mean, they say only four times a week. I'm like, I think you should get them every single day, like yep. a pop every yep. single day. Uh, and then your dark leafy green vegetables, because those are going to give you there. That's a natural way of getting folate, right? Which is another methylation problem, which is going to help with estrogen detoxification. So supporting these pathways through food. I mean, this should just be a cup of this and a cup of this every single day. If you are at risk, mm -hmm. flax seeds, I mean, three to five tablespoons are, um, that's a lot of flax seeds. A lot. That is some. It is a lot. So one of the things that I've actually found outside of just putting in your smoothie and your oatmeal and your salad because you kind of get stale after a while, mix it into your chia pudding. Um, that's another way of doing it. If you're making pancakes, just put flaxseed meal into it. Um, and isn't it best to grind them right as you use mm -hmm. them? Yeah. Exactly. Don't ever buy like flaxseed ground because it rises everything. Right. Yeah. Right. And if you, and I get it, not everybody has time. So if you're going to ground it for the week, just ground it, put it in a like a container, recover it, and then just put it in the freezer yeah. um, and take it out as you need to. Um, then the other um, way is making, you know, I don't know if you guys make nut balls or um, that's a great way of getting flaxseeds. Yeah. Like almonds and 
you know, you have all different kinds of nuts in it and coconut and whatever, just throw your flax seeds in there. So it's just so great. And then when we're talking about, you know, uh, different ways of helping hormonal health, they'll talk about using flax seeds that way. So that's creative ways of getting flax seeds. (laughs) Yeah, I think flax, you definitely have to, if you aren't doing it now, you should probably like increase it slowly. So yeah, otherwise you are going to be one really bloated person. Unhappy <laughs> for, yeah, you'll be yeah, like. Even with the cruciferous vegetables and, and if let's say you are someone who never eats a cruciferous vegetable or no leafy green vegetable <laughs> and you are never been to functional medicine, strive. Right. Start slow. Yeah. Start slow. I know. I get people who are like, wait a minute, this doesn't feel good to me. I'm like, oh, but you did way too much. You had like you know, all of this stuff, I had a huge salad and a bunch of vegetables. And then I had my flax and your gut is going to yell at you for sure. (laughs) Also introduce, you know, things in, but slowly introduce it and then work it up. And this is the the dose that we're talking about is like, you are a pro. (laughs) Right, right, right. That takes some time getting there. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, People forget that these small little things that you can do make a huge difference and and just really being intentional and, and kind of focusing on what it is that that you are doing in a day and what you're putting in your salad and how diversified it can be. And, you know, there's so many different ways to cook up these things and make things. I mean, those power balls are great energy balls. Um, you can get them all over the place, too. So um, can I talk about sugar. I mean, like Americans are addicted to sugar. Yeah, yeah, we're better. I mean, the epidemiology shows that the rest of the world is having more sugar, has an increase in sugar, and Americans have stabilized. So that that's a good thing. But at the end of the day, we are still consuming like over thirty-five teaspoons of sugar a day. Wow! Yeah, and we're yeah. supposed to be consuming less than five. Yeah. So you know, look at and look at the hidden sugars. Look at the overt sugars. I mean, I have patients who come in, you know, like we've talked about this when we were at the Cleveland Clinic, like people put like M&Ms on their salad and we're like, okay, well, how about we get rid of those M&Ms first? And then- <laughs> That's a more obvious thing, you know, with sugar, but like there's hidden sugars in salad dressings and sauces and, you know, drinks, right? right? <laughs> I mean, kombucha for one example, like that's, you know, people talk about that as being a fermented thing, which it is, and it can be helpful, but there's a lot of sugar in it too. So I'm not a kombucha fan because most of my patients have mold and I, I just, right. it just feeds Perfect. the mold. So, Oh, mold is another conversation, right? I mean, that's going to. Yeah, mold causes high estrogen states as well. So the other toxins, you know, they cause mold is definitely a very high estrogen state. And if I have a mold toxic patient, I don't even do the Dutch. I'm like, I need to detoxify you first because there's no point. I know you're going to be high estrogen. I'm just going to support you. Let's yeah. have to spend $350 for something I already know. Right, right, right. So, right. yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll have another podcast about mold. I did have Dr. Joe Krista on, but it's always good to talk about mold more. <laughs> yeah, no, Dr. Joe Krista is like a total expert. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the women's health initiative study back in 1991 and the the results that that came from that and you know the there was a little discrep there's some discrepancies in the research and what came out of that was really that that they were saying that postmenopausal women on birth con- or not birth control but um hormone replacement had a higher risk of breast cancer um heart disease and the things that they were hoping 
were actually lower because of that. But there's a little bit of a flip there, right? The research that came out, they found it wasn't done in potentially the way that it should have been done with the results that we got. So yeah, the women, the WHI study took women's health back 30 years. Yeah. And so there was a lot of mistakes that they made just in the way they set up right. the, the program. They wanted to show results and they really believed hormone replacement would help. And so they they took older women. So they had a lot of 70 to 80, 60 to 70, and the smallest group was 50 to 60, which is your menopausal group that would be best on hormone replacement. So it was skewed to older women. And then they gave like Prempro, which is like, we never use Prempro. It's like, you know, totally toxic, very inflammatory. And clearly they had all these bad results. So they took an older population, they, you know, and they gave them things that were inflammatory and they found, oh my God, people have, you know, cancer. When they back went back and dissected it out, um, the women that were between 50 and 60 who were just menopausal did great. Mm -hmm. But it's women who were post-menopausal 10 years out did not. And so that that's where the controversy is. So if you're seeing a woman post-menopausal 10 years out, there's still people who are like, in the hormone world, there's three kinds of people. There's aggressive, like use the highest dose possible. There's like everybody need, and then there's the moderate group, and then there's the kind of conservative group. And then there's no one over 50. I mean, no one after 10 years, right? Yeah. I think it depends. I don't think it's... I don't think it's that black and white because you have to look at the risk of what's going to happen to the women. So the benefits of hormone replacement that we found from the WHI study, as well as multiple other studies that have come out is that one, we have better brain health. So for hormone replacement, women don't have dementia. That's one in two people. Oh, that's huge. Bone health is better, right? So what if you're at high risk for osteoporosis and you're going to fall and break a hip and now you're never going to have a great quality of life or you might die. Like, don't we need to address that? Uh, so, you know, I mean, so it's not that simple where you can just say, well, you know, your risk of breast cancer is really high, so we're not going to do it. It's like, what is your risk of everything else? And can we use the lowest dose possible to help mitigate these risks but keep that low for uh, that low risk for breast cancer, but monitor you. And then the other thing is the application, right? So Prempro was oral. Um, and we know how estrogen and progesterone are metabolized that when you do it vaginally, that's like a vaginal insertion, um, not just a labial. Uh, so vaginal insertion inside is probably the best, then followed by labial um, application, then transdermal, and then oral when you look at the risk of breast cancer. So a lot of people doing hormone replacement are giving vaginal estrogens and progesterones for because it's never been linked to breast cancer. So that's huge. It's really huge. And I think people need to know all the different nuances of it. But, you know, also know that, like, as you're talking about the risk of osteoporosis and heart disease and brain health. I mean, all of those things are leading diagnoses that, that women have that die from, right? I mean, the risk of heart disease is probably, well, you said breast cancer was the number two. What's the number one? Heart disease. <laughs> exactly. So, 
So if we kind of balance those things out, but you also said something really, really important is that you, you test, right? You look at what's going on with that person and, and you follow it. You don't just give someone hormones and say, okay, I'll see you in three years. So that's conventional medicine though, Karen. So conventional medicine for men, we test, we treat, we test again for testosterone. Transgender, we test, we treat, we repeat. Women, we just give. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. how much sexism is it? I'm sorry. This is about total sexism. Bunch yeah. of men sat around and said, oh, this is what we're going to do. But every woman I know that's in within this, there are always, I mean, even the men in functional medicine are, but women are more likely to test than my male colleagues are. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, men are just like, oh, what? I need to follow up with that. <laughs> I, I mean, but that... You, you think about that and you, you think, why, why is that, why is that happening? Right. Why do they think that it's okay to just give this to women and, and not retest? I mean, where did that even come from? Right. I, I mean, are those insurance regulations now too? Like does insurance not cover testing no. follow-up after hormone replacement? Yeah. yeah. So that's the bias. It's a huge bias. It's a huge bias. What do we do? Who do we call? <laughs> but I think, it, I mean, when we look at who's coming up the ranks in physicians, I mean, we see medical schools are over 50% women. Yeah. So it's going to shift. And as, as women become more powerful within the organizations of where these um, policies are made and stuff like that, things are going to shift. But right now, it's still the medical advisory committee is a predominantly male thing still. Yeah. Well, and I also tell people like this is sort of an aside, but in functional medicine, I usually tell my patients, just submit your testing and some of the things that you're doing with functional medicine to your insurance company. They may not pay. They're probably not going to pay, right? Most of the time, they're not. But at least it's on their radar. If everybody keeps submitting their paperwork and showing that they're going to functional medicine, they can't ignore it anymore. And they have to start to pay attention to, wow, okay, what are the outcomes with these people? And maybe we're going to look at this a little bit more closely. Yeah, no, that's a great idea. I never thought about it that way. I mean, you're right. They're probably not going to cover it. But you know, with high deductibles, I definitely think you should try to send it in because these are all part of your healthcare expenses because you have a high deductible you're choosing to do care differently because you're like i'm waiting for something to happen to me and i don't want to right right i'm just gonna wait oh maybe this will happen no <laughs> we have much more agency and i think that makes people feel so much better right you empowerment. Don't patient empowerment is huge empowerment and that i think is good for your overall health right to, to know that I don't have to just wait. I'm going to sit around and maybe like a year from now, um, you know, I'll find something out. No, I can take control right now and I can do something for myself. And that's really what this podcast is about, is really helping people to get this information, to know that there's some other ways out there to take care of your own health. If you know that there are some risk factors, we don't have to just ignore it and bury it and just not pay attention or just follow whatever our primary care might be saying. Nope, you don't have to do this. Yeah. So thanks for sharing all that information about the Women's Health Initiative, because I think that was really helpful. But 
let's kind of move toward um, looking at the Dutch test a little mm -hmm. bit. I mean, I we don't need to go in depth because it is pretty um, involved, but you've talked about a couple of the different pathways. You talked about the different types of estrogen. Um, let's just in a as as simple as we can so people understand why this kind of testing is important um, and what information you can get from it. So think about it this way. I mean, so um, sex hormones are made from cholesterol. So this is the other, <laughs> I mean, I want your cholesterol not to be super low because otherwise you won't make your sex hormones, right? So that's, and then sex hormones break down into some, an adrenal hormone first called pregnenolone. Um, and then, then the pathways start to shift. Pregnenolone breaks down one pathway into progesterone very important female hormone, right? Um, and then it can break down a little bit further, but then it goes into your stress pathway. So if you are someone who's totally stressed out, it's all the time on like fight and flight, guess what? You won't make progesterone. Your body will just divert straight to your stress. So that's the first thing that just, you know, it shows us that, you know, you, you're like, no progesterone, you're going all distress. And then you have to look at your life and be honest with yourself about what you're going to change. Um, I, I find stress testing helpful only when the person is like unwilling to admit they're stressed. <laughs> right. Well, tests are really helpful, especially as a health coach, because I can point them to that and go, look, you're, you're totally stressed out, right? Um, but it's included in, in this hormone test, so I really like it. And then the other pathway, pregnenolone goes down into, it goes into DHEA, um, but just to simplify it, to testosterone. And testosterone then gets changed to estrogen. And then estrogen, there's three kinds of big estrogens we talked about, estrone, estradiol, and estriol. And all of them have to get metabolized into something your body gets rid of. And that goes into lots of genetic different SNPs, but the four there's three metabolites that we really worry uh, that we look at. The 2OH, it's a good metabolite. It still needs to be methylated to come out, which means a lot of vitamin Bs, um, B9 and uh, folate and B12, and then it can go into 16OH, which is what we call more pro. It used to be a bad. They used to be, oh, this is linked to breast cancer. It's not linked to breast cancer anymore. It's more linked to proliferative tissue. So you're in a higher estrogen state. So we have risk here. We need to mitigate that, but you know we can do that. And then it goes into 4-OH, which is definitely the breast cancer pathway. And the nice thing about the Dutch will show you, it gives you a little pie chart on the, on the on a sidebar, and it will tell you how you're how quickly you're able to detoxify. So when we detoxify, we take a product that comes from the environment, a zero estrogen, and the body has to change it into something, and it actually makes it into a really bad product. And then it goes into phase two, which makes it into a good product, and then it's able to get either pooped or peed out. Um, the problem is phase one and phase two have to be at the same level. And sometimes it's not because people don't eat vegetables, they're stressed out, they're missing things. And phase one is happening, but phase two is where they're making into a less toxic substance is not happening. 
Um, and that needs to be addressed. So the Dutch gives me all of this information. Um, and then it gives me some organic acid levels of vitamin levels that affect the hormone pathway along with the stress levels. So I, I can talk to my women saying, you know, look, I really think stress is a much bigger deal than you're making it. And what are you going to do about this? Like you can't go down, you can't keep doing what you're doing. It's not working. Cause they're like, I'm, I'm breathing, I'm meditating and I'm exercising. I'm like, okay, but if that's how you're doing it, it's not working. Hey, right. Checking the boxes, but not really shifting the way you respond to stressors. That's why I think working with a health coach makes a big difference. Cause I think there's a lot of box checkers. Oh, there is a lot of box checkers. And then the box checking becomes stressful because you go, <laughs> oh, I got to complete my circles on my Apple watch and I got to do this and I got to do that. And you're like, wait a minute, like this is supposed to be like lowering your stress response and you're actually ramping it up trying to do all this stuff. Um, but yeah, you're right. I think stress is really sort of brushed under the carpet or, you know, people think they don't have a choice about changing things. But that's a really good, I think, um, helpful, simplistic way. If there is any way to talk about the Dutch test in a simplified way, that was really good, right? Because it helps people see. Hopefully and, they'll be they're not but confused about that. <laughs> no. Well, I'm sure, you know, I mean, metabolites and, and that sort of thing. I think people don't phase one, phase two. But I think that it's important to have that information, know that your doctor can have that information. But really what's the implementation in lifestyle that we really need to make? It's the nutrition. It's those supplements that you know that if your your body's not absorbing them or pulling them out of the foods that you um, eat, then you need to supplement that, right? And then it's also looking at like stress and your environment and your physical movement and exercise, whether that's too much or not enough. Um, all of those things become that's the plan, right? You find all this information out, but you can also say, well, you got to really probably mash on the accelerator with your broccolis, your brassicas, your flax, all of that stuff, because that's going to help you get rid of some of this stuff. Right. But movement is, I mean, study after study shows people who have movement. And so let me make this very clear because my patients are like, I don't have time to go work out. I'm like totally stressed out. Yeah, movement doesn't have to be going to the gym movement. I mean, when you look at all the blue zones, we've talked about this. They never went to the gym. <laughs> they just had everyday movement. So one of the things I've been telling my patients, like, I want you to sit on the ground to eat. Like, what? like <laughs> most Asians always sit on the ground to eat, but this constant getting up and down, up and down. I mean, you want to talk about the greatest squat in the world? Is this movement of going from being cross-legged to standing and being cross-legged again or in a squatting position, the more often you do that, the stronger you'll be. I mean, you'll be, you're going to do like 50 squats in the, or maybe 20 at the gym and you could do a hundred all by yourself. Right. All day long. Changing what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I talk about that all the time and I'm going to call Gary out on this one if it was <laughs> Gary, but He's always like putting things up higher so he doesn't have to bend down. And I'm like, Gary, that is not going to be helpful for you as you age. Like he never wants to like bend down and get like the, he's super healthy. I mean, he exercises a lot, but the one thing he doesn't want to do is like 
crouch down or bend down or get up and down. And I feel like that is, as you say, it's like a number one thing as we age that we should still be doing, right? Bend down, get, you know, for me, I get the dog food out. It's on the bottom of the closet and I'm always bending and I try not to like, I don't hold on to anything to get up. I mean, there's so many opportunities in our daily life to do that kind of movement. Right. So when I'm talking about bending, I'm actually, I want you to go into a squat position. That's, yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, yeah, no, this is amazing. I mean, garden, pull those weeds that we just talked about, you know, you know, bro, I mean, sweep outside. I mean, all these things that we did, I mean, I remember people doing this. This has been like, nobody does it now, you know? <laughs> no. I know this reminds and me far, of far away when you go grocery shopping. I mean, there's so many small yeah. things. So don't get worked about so much about did you go to the gym or not? And then like I talked, we talked about before we started was I love yoga with Adrian. Like you can, it's like 10 minutes to 60 minutes. You get to choose it's on your time. Um, and I really, my, my patients have, thank you so much for telling me about it. My patients have really loved that because the freedom of not having to drive someplace yeah was liberating oh absolutely i think uh and and yoga is one of those things that you can do at your home and you can do 10 minutes right 10 minutes is better than nothing and then you go oh i really feel good actually and then you want to do 15 minutes you don't have to do an hour in a hot sweaty studio i love yoga at a studio but i'm also saying if that limits you from actually doing it, then find another way. There's always another way. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So, so all the lifestyle piece I think is, is huge. Um, you know, this, our conversation about all of this is, is really about like, how do we shift what we're doing on a daily basis and understand why we're doing this, right? If you understand why you're doing this. You're not just checking the boxes. You're not just going, oh yeah, I'm supposed to eat a lot of broccoli. I'm going to try to do that. But if you realize that this means, okay, I'm reducing this risk I'm, I have potentially for breast cancer. One in eight, remember, and not all those women have the BRCA gene, right? So there's so much more to it. What does that mean? Like if I reduce that and I don't have, I don't end up having breast cancer, or I don't get sick, like I can still, you know, all these things mean I can spend more time with my kids. I can travel the way I want to. I can get down on the floor and play with my grandkids because I'm doing these squats that we talked about, right? Like it's, it's what do you get in your life that makes it joyful and full and, and wonderful and not just, oh, somebody told me I should be doing this. Right. Everybody's got their own personal why, their own personal values around this. Um, and I think some of us, it's it's hit a lot closer to home than others. Right. But one in eight, it's going to happen to somebody, you know, and love. Um, and my hope with this is that people got some great information here, that they can share it with someone else, like share the podcast, let somebody else listen to it. You know, I don't care if you review it or <laughs> rate it. I mean, that would be lovely, but um, you know, just share it and share this information. That's really what's critical. Cause if more people know this, then, then we can move the needle a little bit. Right. And then, and the, and the couple supplements that I think are really helpful when we think about cancer prevention, right? Omega-3 
I mean, I think everybody should be on omega-3, like two grams of EPA and DHA, not just omega-3 oil. Curcumin, lots of really good literature on curcumin. And then specifically for breast health is N-acetylcysteine, NAC. Um, and then depending on these pathways, clearly there's other supplements that we reckon, we recommend, but you know, getting those cruciferous veggies, getting the flax seeds, getting the leafy greens, green tea, exercising, keeping your weight low. Even if you, if you're overweight, losing 10, 20 pounds has been shown to decrease your risk of overall cancers. So, you know, you may want to be like 50 pounds less, but even that 10 and 20 pounds and maintaining that is going to be huge. And then the stress response is, <laughs> I, I think that, that Americans are so stressed. I just don't understand like how to help. <laughs> well, I think, you know, with some of the people that I've worked with, they've had some breakthroughs around that. They've realized that, you know, first of all, over-exercising is also stressful. So like not like over-exercise, but you have to shift the way you think about things. You have to shift about like, is this really getting me where I want to go? You know, that intense stress personality where your kids have to do all the activities. I have to be going, going, going every night. And then that leaves no time for healthy food or food prep on the weekend, or you're exhausted on the weekend because you're not getting enough sleep. You're just running, running, running. Like, why do you have to do that? I mean, that's one of the big things that that rushing woman syndrome book is one that I recommend to a lot of people because she really talks about that connection and how to start putting up boundaries around that stuff and not feeling like you've got to do everything. You know, I think it's, it's that we have to shift the way we think about what's really important in our lives, but also pay attention to the signs of stress, like people bury it and they think that it isn't there and it really is present more than we think. Um, so yeah, I mean, looking at that heart rate variability is huge. I mean, and then gosh, Karen, being kind to yourself, that's like such a nouveau idea, but you know, we are so kind and compassionate to our friends when they're in need, but yet we never show ourselves the same kindness that we do to our friends. So I always tell my, I always tell them, please treat yourself like you would treat your best friend. They're like, Oh my God, I'd be getting up and done. <laughs> Maybe that's what you need to do. Right. But but also looking at what are those things I need to get done, right? Yeah. Do I have to do them to a perfectionist level? Am I doing more for other people than I am for myself, right? It's not selfish. It's self-care and you're better for the people that are in your life if you take some time for yourself. And really the things that you and I talk about with that stress piece, you could take five minutes and do a little breath practice in the middle of the day, a couple of times, what does that take? Even two minutes. Those things are the things that bring those levels down a little bit more so that you don't have that high cortisol. You can kind of manage it throughout the day. But yeah. that's from you know, joy and gratitude. That's so important. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to be back. We'll have more <laughs> conversations with Seema. <laughs> but thank you for this because in this month of breast cancer awareness, I think it's really important to talk about the things that traditionally are not being talked about. Um, so thank you for all this great information. Um, and we'll see what's up next for the SEMA and Karen conversations. <laughs> thank you so much for the opportunity, Karen. Yeah, absolutely.